The Addiction Podcast, Point of No Return. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Addiction Podcast, Point of No Return. My name is Joni Siegel, and I'm the host for this podcast. And my husband, Steve, is the co-founder and producer of the podcast. Just a reminder to please subscribe to this podcast wherever you listen to podcasts and give us a five-star rating so that people can find us when they do a Google search. Please also subscribe to our YouTube channel and give our videos a thumbs up and ring the bell so you're informed when we do a new video. Today's episode is episode number 334. And um, today we have an interview with a lady whose name is Janine Coulter. And Janine Coulter's story, which we are going to hear today, is one of the most powerful and inspiring journeys of transformation and redemption. For 15 long years, Janine battled with addiction, leading to multiple arrests, homelessness, and spent her final days of shooting meth and heroin in a literal doghouse before getting sober in January 2015. I am sure that she has a quite the story and she will tell us where she's at now. So without further ado, let's talk to Janine Coulter. Janine Coulter, thank you so much for being on the podcast today. You are a podcast professional, so this is exciting. <laughs> Professional is a stretch. I do have a I, I do have a show, okay. <laughs> so, but thank you. Okay, and good. thank you for having me. I really appreciate it. Absolutely. So Janine, take us back. Where did you, I know you had your own history of addiction, but take us back to where you grew up, what your childhood was like, and what got you into drugs? So I had an amazing childhood. Um, you know, grew up in, you know, this uh, super loving family. Um, my dad's a pilot. My mom's a social worker. They both have master's degrees, like higher levels of education. Um, they raised us with like love and discipline. Like the, you know, we did little league. My dad coached all the things. My mom made sure I took like SAT courses and they signed me up for dance and summer camps. And they went to all my events. Like they were present loving parents. And there was nothing in my childhood that would indicate that I would grow up to be a homeless heroin addict, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and, I, and I don't, I, I guess when I say that, I don't necessarily mean that there are things in childhood that would set you up for that. But you know what I mean. There's the yep. stereotypical, you think of somebody who probably came from like a broken home and was like abused. Yep. You know, I was I was never abused. Nothing like that ever happened to me. And, you know, the only thing that threw me off a little bit was they did get divorced when I was a senior in high school. They did split up. And so that threw like a, a wrench in things. But again, you know, but like lots of people's parents split up and they don't end up shooting heroin, you know. So growing up, I was very, very academically like oriented and um, my my goals were academic, right? I was academically focused. And did really well on my SATs and got into this great college in Washington, D.C. And I, I will say that when my parents split up, it did it did throw me for a loop. And the first thing that suffered was my education, was my schooling. Mm-hmm. And I just – and looking back, I went through, I think, like a two-year nervous breakdown. I was very depressed. You know, I wasn't expecting it. And – I didn't really want to study anymore. I didn't really want to go to class anymore. And I had always been, quote, good. Like, I didn't drink. I didn't, you know, smoke weed with my friends. I did occasionally, but, like, very, very rarely. And I started feeling like I spent all this time doing so well in school. I should have partied more. I should have gone less. You know, it feels like this whole 
this whole world that I was trying to get into is like a setup, you know, mm-hmm. and, and it's not real. And I felt like tricked and all this stuff. So, you know, I, but, but what I always say is that, cause I believe that addiction started in me long before the actual drugs were present. Right. I think that I have the characteristics of addiction just, you know, chemically and physically is my personal beliefs. Neither of my parents were alcoholic addicts or are alcoholic addicts, but it's very far reaching on, on both sides. In fact, my cousin just passed away on Saturday. His liver gave up. He was only like 48 years old. He was a longtime alcoholic. It's, it's definitely, definitely in my family on both sides. And I think that a lot of it's genetic. And, and one of the reasons I believe that is that, you know, college is harder than high school, right? And addicts often feel that the rules don't apply to us, or I'll, I'll keep it me, right? They say that addicts think that the rules don't apply to us. And I definitely felt that way. And studying in high school was easier, right? And I mean, it wasn't easy, but it was easier. And when I got to college, it was like harder. You know what I mean? Everybody was as smart as me <laughs> and it was harder. And I didn't want to do that. And I didn't want to put in the extra work. And that's where I see like my early addiction, even little things like, so I left the school I was at in DC and moved back to Georgia, went to the University of Georgia, failed out. I say left, I, I sort basically failed out, went to University of Georgia. And you had to like drive to this parking structure and take a bus to campus. And that's no big deal. Everyone else did it. But I was like so put upon that I had to go to this parking structure and I would always be really late and I would park in the handicapped spot right by the stairs. And eventually they finally towed my car, like, of course. And I was super pissed. I remember calling the guy that that, the tow company and I was like, y'all take my car. And that's how I said it. Did y'all take my car? Like not I was in the wrong spot. Just things like that, that that now I can look back and see like. You know, I there were there were little like peaks here and there of somebody that didn't think the rules applied to them, you know? Mm. So when I came back to Georgia, I was introduced to cocaine for the first time. I was bartending and I, I quit school ostensibly to pursue acting, which I had done a little acting when I was younger. So it wasn't totally out of nowhere. But also a lot of it was that I didn't want to drive to the parking structure or study, you know? And so I was like, you know what? I, and 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 this is like an addict mindset sort of. I'm like, you know what? It's easier. It will be easier for me to become like an Oscar award-winning actress than finish my undergraduate degree at Georgia. So I decided to bartend for a year, save up money, and move to LA. So as I was bartending, I was introduced to Coke for the first few times. And, um, you know, you hear people talk about drinking a lot, and they'll say, the first time I drank, I knew. I didn't feel that way with drinking. I didn't really like being... um, uh, what's the word that I'm looking for? Like not all the way with it. I didn't really like being, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Impaired. I didn't like being impaired, yeah. you know, mentally or judgmentally. I, I didn't like that. But Coke doesn't do that, right? Coke makes you like more aware, which is what I wanted. I wanted the stimulant side of things. And I remember thinking the first time I did a line of Coke though, that's where I can relate to when alcoholics say I knew. I did Coke and I remember thinking, oh, I can do this. If, if life is like this, I can do this. Mm. I'm not sad. I'm not tired. I'm not, I, yeah, I can manage this. And I just, I loved the feeling that it produced. But for me, addiction was super progressive. And in the beginning, I didn't ever buy it. I never bought it once that year that I was in Georgia and just would do it when it was available. I would do it till it was gone and I would feel like crap the next day. Can I cuss on your show? Absolutely. Okay. <laughs> I would feel like crap the next day. And um, so, but again, I wasn't ever like buying it. 
But it was already problematic. Like I, I've, I've actually never shared this. I kind of forgot about it till right now. I was auditioning for an acting school in L.A. and I had to fly there. And I was up all night the night before doing coke. And finally, the guy I was with was like, hey, don't you need to like go to the airport? <laughs> and I like went to the airport in a haze and I could have like blown the audition. I ended up doing fine. And I got into the school, the American Academy of Dramatic Arts. So I did get into the school and I it's like a country song. I drove to L.A. in my old Saturn with like 600 bucks and a cowboy <laughs> boot. And I found I'd paid for one month of rent already. Moved to L.A. And started to pursue acting, not really, because it wasn't really what my heart, you know, my heart wasn't in it. I just didn't want to be in Georgia anymore. And I just didn't want to be sad anymore. And so I thought if I made some changes, I was definitely looking for some external validation. I wanted fame. And, you know, of course, I didn't know this then. But looking back, I'm sure I thought that that would make me feel better, you know. Right. So I, I moved to L.A. And the coke actually kind of stopped for a little bit. And but it's so funny, I, I would tell people later when I ended up at a detox at 32. So I'm, I'm 22 now when I moved to LA, I would say I was clean for like three years because for a few years in LA, I was just drinking and smoking weed. And so I would say I was clean. I'm like, no, 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 no. I'm not a drug addict because I was a drug addict once. I was super addicted to Coke and I quit for like three years. Um, And so I quit for three years and then it popped back up again while I was in LA at like age 26. And I went through a really, you know, bad breakup and was bartending and started doing coke again. And, and it really escalated that time. Then I was buying it, spending a lot of money on it. And it got me to the point where I had to leave LA. My car, that same Saturn, finally blew up from not changing the oil because I was spending my money doing other things. And LA is not a place you can live and take public transportation. So I like kind of tried to do that for a little while, but I just, my life was incredibly unmanageable. Like... Sometimes. The hardest thing about getting someone into recovery is getting them to agree to treatment. Bobby Newman, a certified drug counselor with 30 years experience and an over 85% success rate as an interventionist, has created a series of 12 videos that you can use right now to learn every step to get your loved one to agree to treatment. Call 866-989-4499 today. And say the word podcast to get a 10% discount. Or go to newmaninterventions.com and type in the word podcast for a 10% discount. This service comes with a free one-hour consultation with Bobby. You talk about one of the hallmarks of addiction is your life being unmanageable. My life was wildly unmanageable. I I, I never paid. I, I got parking tickets all the time because I wouldn't park in the right place. And then I wouldn't pay for my parking tickets and I would get a boot on my car. Like I, I, I wouldn't even check the mail because I was afraid of all of like the notices telling me about my, my credit was crap. Like my life was very unmanageable. I couldn't get anywhere on time. Um, that chased me for a while. But so I ended up having to leave LA. And fortunately, by then, my mother had moved from Georgia and she was living in San Diego, which is near here. And I left LA, moved down to San Diego. And at that point, I was like 29, 30. And I always say that Coke bad, and I don't know how many of your listeners are active addicts, but Coke bad is very, very different from heroin bad. So things were Coke bad. Okay. And I moved down here, refused to quit drinking. I knew the cocaine was a problem, but I refused to quit drinking. No way. I'm 29 years old. I'm single. How am I going to go on a date if I'm not drinking? Get out of here. So 
don't quit drinking. The Coke kind of stopped because I didn't have a connection in San Diego. Mainly was the reason I found some, but it wasn't very good. And I started dating this guy. And, you know, unbeknownst to me, he had been an opiate addict before. He'd been an Oxycontin addict before. He was actually a Marine and he'd had some PTSD and he'd been prescribed opiates at one point, right, for, for part of his trauma. And when I met him, he wasn't on them anymore, I don't think. I guess I'll probably never really know. But like a year and a half into that relationship, and we're partying a lot, right? Like we're drinking and again, smoking weed. But I was like teaching. I'm, I'm also in fitness. So throughout this entire process, I teach spin and I teach bar and I teach Pilates, which is crazy because I was partying and doing all this at the same time. But so I'm like teaching. My life is okay. I'm not progressing, but I'm not homeless. Right. right. Like, right. So You're functioning. I was totally functioning at that time. Yeah. I wasn't happy internally. And, and, and this is one of the reasons why I'm actually so incredibly grateful for this person introducing me to heroin. And I was really angry with him for a long time because heroin gifted me a lot of stuff in my life that I have now. But so at this time, I was not progressing in my life. I was late for classes all the time. I was always about to get fired, you know, for being late, even though I was super talented. So I went and hung out with him one night and he was like fucked up, like eyes rolling back in his head. It was not something I recognized. It wasn't mm. Coke and it wasn't drunk. And I was like, what is the matter with you? And I think he just told me he was super drunk. And this is actually a story I also don't often share, but my my grandfather passed away and I was back in Florida at a funeral and I couldn't get in touch with my boyfriend while I was gone. And I was super, I thought maybe he was like cheating on me. <laughs> and so we, I get back and he's not answering and I jump in my car and I drive out to where he lives and I like bust into his room thinking there's going to be a girl and there's no girl. There's him. All the lights are off. He's got a movie on. There's like pizza boxes everywhere. And he's just laying in bed awake. And it smelled like weed and like cigarette smoke and maybe like some throw up. And there was like a uh, tinfoil everywhere. I thought from him making like tinfoil pipes to smoke weed. And I was like, what are you doing? Why can't I get in touch with you? And he said, oh, you're back. And I was like, yeah, I'm back, man. What's going on? And he was like, oh, I think I'm sick. I, I, have, I have the flu or something. And I was like, okay. And because this is the type of person I was, I was like, well, it's your fault. I just drove out here and I didn't have enough gas to get here. So you owe me 15 bucks. <laughs> So get up. We're going to the gas station. You're putting gas in my car, which is so bitchy, but whatever. So again, that type of like unmanageability. I probably was actually out of gas, you know, even though I was working. So we go to the gas station. His card gets declined for 15 bucks and then 10 bucks and then five bucks. And I'm like, so we go back to his house and we're in the front yard. And by then I had known a little bit about like maybe he'd had a pill addiction in the past. And I was like, look, we've been together a while now, a year and a half. I was like, look. If you're back on pills or something, man, like you can tell me, you know, I have my story. I used to have a Coke problem and I kicked it. I can help you, right? Like that, you know, um, like I love you. What's going on? You are listening to the Addiction Podcast, Point of No Return. For more information on the podcast or to reach out, if you have a story you would like to share with us, Go to our Facebook page by the same name, or you can email us at theaddictionpodcast at yahoo.com, or go to our website, theaddictionpodcast.com, or call us at 
314-314-7080. And please remember to subscribe to our podcast wherever you listen to podcasts and give us a five-star review. So we're in the yard and he's just like looking out the window. And I said, and I say yard because it did. We just like drove up into the yard. That was like the kind of house it was. He kind of lived out in the sticks. And I said, you know, if there's something going on, if you're back on opiates or something, you know, you can tell me. And he said, well, there is something going on. Um, I am doing something, but it's not pills. And I said, what are you doing? And he was like, just before I tell you this, I want you to know that I understand what you're going to have to do. And it's okay. And I just want to say that I wanted something different for us. And I said, okay. And he said, I'm, I'm on heroin. I'm doing heroin. And I still remember that moment. Like it was like all of the air just like left my car. And I remember thinking, and I had all of the thoughts that people do when they hear heroin and like heroin, that's the worst one. It kills you, you know, like I'm thinking needles, HIV, what are you doing? Like, oh my gosh. And I kind of come back into the moment and he's like, and I understand that now you need to, you know, like leave me or whatever. But I just want to say that I do love you and I wanted something different. And his life was very sad. Mm. Uh, very, very, very sad. He had a lot of trauma growing up and multiple tours overseas. And he'd seen some horrific things. He had some real PTSD and trauma and he got out of the car and he was like walking into the house. And I remember seeing him walk into the house and I thought like, I will not be another person that like leaves him, you know? And I get out and I like follow him into his house and I like walk in the room with him and I'm like, I love you. I'm going to help you. And I was Googling. I was so naive. I was Googling because then he tells me he's sick from heroin, whatever that means. And I'm like, how do you help someone that's sick from heroin? And, I'm, and and I now know that there is nothing. There is nothing you can do to help someone that's sick from heroin. Nothing. And I'm like bringing him like chicken soup and all this stuff. And so the next day, he's like, I'm like, hey, how you doing? He was like, oh, I feel better. He's at work. I now know that what happens is he used again because he wouldn't have been better the next day. Right. But I'm, Okay. So... We go through a few months of him like saying he's not using and he's using and he's using and he's not using. And then finally, one night I've been drinking and I was like, look, if it's so awesome, let me try it. I caught him smoking a foil in the bathroom. And I was like, if it's so awesome, let me try it. And of course, he protested a little bit, but I ended up doing it. And what I liked about heroin actually was that it it made me feel like I was on coke. It, it gave me a lot of energy. But I could sleep because Coke was really not working for me any, anymore. By the end, I would get very, very sick. Afterwards, the next day, I'd be like on the floor, just like the worst feeling ever from, you know, the next day. And it made me feel that way, but I could, I could sleep. So some time passed, you know, not that long, five or six weeks. And I remember thinking during that time, like, what are you doing, Janine? Smoking heroin at night and then training these people during the day. But and there was one night that I wasn't going to go out to his house. And I started feeling like I had like the flu or something in the afternoon. And I spoke with another friend of ours. And I told him that. I was like, yeah, I was going to go out there. But, you know, I, I think I'm getting kind of sick. And he did heroin too. And he was like, Janine, you, you're dope sick. Yeah. And I said, no, I'm not. I don't do it like you guys do it. No, I'm not. And he was like, okay, well, why don't you come over here and try some and we'll see. 
And I was like, okay. So I went over to his house and I even brought like my own straw and he handed me and I was like, oh no, I brought my own because I'm, you know, I have the flu. And I remember his face. He was just like, okay. Because he like knew what I was about to realize, you know? So I smoked a little and I immediately felt better. Mm. And I was like, holy shit. Did I just accidentally get strung out on heroin? <laughs> and he was like, Janine, like we told you. And I was like, no, not really. You know, like I wasn't doing it enough. I don't think like, I didn't really know what you meant. And I'm like, so what do I do now? Like if I stop, what happens? And he was like, well, I mean, you'd get sick. And I'm like, for how long? He says, it's like two weeks. And I'm like, I don't have two weeks. I have to teach tomorrow, which is true. And I'm like, I don't have two weeks. And he was like, well, then, I, you know, you just keep going. And I'm like, so I have to like buy heroin now. I just accidentally called myself a heroin habit. And I'm like, well, how much does it cost? Like, I didn't even know. And he's like, you know, 20 bucks is probably all you need. And I'm like, is the guy dangerous? Like, does he have a gun? I'm going to go meet a heroin dealer. And this guy ended up being someone that was really instrumental in saving me later, the man I was about to meet and buy heroin from for the first time, because a heroin dealer is just an addict, typically, right? Yeah. It's not a scary person. It's just an addict. Not always, but usually. And so he was like, yeah, here's the guy's number. And I'm like, oh my God, I just accidentally became a heroin addict. So I like go to his house and I start buying dope and it worked for like 10 months. I was able to do heroin and teach, but things like really started falling apart. Um, and within 10 months I was homeless and my roommate kicked me out and that started a series of five years of me being homeless in jail or in a rehab, a program, a facility. And those years are, that's when I, that's when I learned what heroin bad means, you know, right. the consequences during that time got increasingly worse. I did eventually switch to needles like most do. Um, and I'm shooting meth and heroin. Most of the time I was usually homeless. I got arrested five times. The last time was for strong arm robbery and they were going to send me to prison and like, give me a strike and all this stuff. And things had gotten way, way, way worse. So all of that kind of looks the same in and out, in and out, in and out of sober livings. And the thing that I would do is I would live in a sober living and I would pretend I was clean, but I wasn't right. I was using, and I had gotten very good at passing a P test so I could pass your P test, even though I was clearly using. So I'm in a sober living. And, and so that moment with my friend, when I realized I was strung out, I was 30. Now I'm 34 in this moment. So I'm in a sober living and I'm strung out and they're testing me because it's obvious I'm strung out. I haven't paid rent. I'm super skinny. And I passed my P test that night. I was out with my first heroin dealer, actually the guy I was like, is he scary? And he's not scary at all. And he had ended up getting busted and he'd done like a year and a half in prison and was still clean when he got out and was still clean and was like kind of trying to help me. And we were out to dinner for new year's Eve at like a Chili's or something. And the owner of my sober living called me and she said, Hey, Janine, so you left some heroin on the bathroom counter and you can't come back. And I remember thinking, did I just leave heroin on the sink? Like I need that. But of course to her, I was like, you don't know that's mine. 
Eight other women in recovery live there. It could be one of theirs. You don't know that's mine. I passed a drug test for you this morning. And she said, that's true. You did pass a drug test this morning. And I don't know how you've been doing that, but all of the other women are here and we're all pretty sure it's yours. But I tell you what, if you can bring me a blood test that says you're clean, I'll support you and you can come back. Which nobody had ever asked me for before. And of course to her, I went, fine. I'll bring you one tomorrow. And we get off the phone and I'm like, shit. <laughs> so my friend gets me a motel room and we go to the motel room and I'm like, hey, just give me your phone. Cause I didn't have a smartphone. I had a flip phone. And it was 2014. I was like, cause they used to give you a phone when you got out of jail called the Obama phone. So you could get a job. So I had my Obama phone, which by the way, very helpful policy. <laughs> so for later, <laughs> so <laughs> your phone, I need to Google the Tri-City logo, which is the hospital here. I'm like, I need to forge a blood test. I've actually had to forge a medical document before in LA, whatever. I could do it again. I need to see what they look like though. Give me your phone. And he was sitting there on the bed across from me. And, and this guy really backed me up all the time. You know what I mean? Like he was super helpful. He really cared about me. And he wasn't saying anything though. Like he was just staring at me with this look. And I remember saying, okay, don't look at me like that. I don't want to do this. I don't want to forge a blood test. She's making me forge a blood test because just like, did you take my car? You know, yeah, yeah. not my actions. Yeah. I'm like, she's making me forge this blood test. What am I supposed to do? I can't kick outside, which is relatively true and fair. You can't kick outside as a woman. Bad things will happen, but still I'm like, I can't kick on the streets outside next to a dumper next to a dumpster. You know, what am I supposed to do? She's making me forge this. What am I supposed to do? And he said, I mean, you could get clean. And I like sat down on the bed across from him and thought, holy shit. I guess I, I guess I could do that. Like, I, I am trying so hard. I'm working so hard to keep this in my life. With these, because the way I pass a P test is relatively uncomfortable. <laughs> I'm like doing these things to destroy myself continuously. I guess I could do that, you know? And like, obviously, people had said stuff like that to me before because I'd been using for so long. But I don't know why I had somebody else ask me this once why did that matter in that moment? You know, like, I don't know. And so much of this is just like a mystery and luck and God's grace. And, and, but I wasn't ready that night because I still had some heroin with me. So I stay there. And the next morning I called my connect and I was like, I don't know where I'm going to go. I got kicked out of my sober living. I don't know what to do. And he said, okay, well, I have somewhere that you can stay. Um, and I said, really? Where? And he said, you can stay in the doghouse in my backyard. And I said, really? Awesome. Thank you. I'll be right there. So my friend did not want to bring me, but he did. So he dropped me off in an alley. And I always tell people it was more like a shed that his dog would like go in and out on. It was like a futon. One of those little tiny things that you had to crawl into. Yeah. <laughs> and he let his dog come inside and me stay outside. And I stayed in that shed for three nights shooting meth and heroin. And um, he was just bringing me meth and heroin because he was. And there's all these like, there's all these like hustles in the dope world where like a relationship you know, why, why is a relationship symbiotic in some way? And 
I needed heroin and meth. And he, he was much older. He was like in his fifties and he hadn't been able to find a vein in a really long time, but I could hit his armpit. And so he was just back to smoking heroin, but I could hit him in his arm, meaning I shoot him up, register. Yeah. 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 So, and he liked me, we were friends. So like, we're, you know, so, (laughs) and he would, he would padlock me in at night, but not to keep me there. I wasn't like kidnapped. I don't actually, I I think the purpose of that was more so he'd let somebody, he'd let other girls stay there before and his wife would get like really mad about it. So it was more to protect me like from her. So I was there for three nights and the last night my, a friend of mine called me and said, I had another Marine friend, the Marine base is out here um, or there's a Marine base out here. And he would go back and forth to Afghanistan and call me when he was back and check on me. And I'd met him before I was using. And he came back and he was like, hey, just got back. I'm out at 29 Palms. He got back from another tour. You know, what are you doing? And I said, I am living in a doghouse in Oceanside. And I think I'm going to die. I think I'm going to die. And he said, okay, if I come get you tomorrow, will you come with me? And I said, yes, I will. And I had robbed this person before twice. And um, I said, yeah, I'll, I'll come meet you. And there was a Burger King near where I was. And it was a Sunday. I went to the Burger King. I called my mother. And by now she had gotten to a point of not, she was always very emotionally supportive, but she wouldn't give me any money, which is the right move at this point. Right. And she was on her way to church and she stopped at the Burger King to see me. And I wanted five bucks for some cigarettes and she refused to give me $5. She brought me vitamin C chewable tablets and a cliff bar. And I was so annoyed. I was like, I don't need this shit. I need a pack of cigarettes. And she was like, well, this is all I have or whatever. And I was like, and again, I was like, so now you're also going to make him have to buy me cigarettes. Like he's already coming here to save my life. Now you're going to make him buy me cigarettes. (laughs) And I remember when she left, she was like, good luck, honey. I, you know, I hope this works for you. So he comes and get me and gets me. And I went with him out to 29 Palms and I kicked heroin for the last time. And that was in January of 2015. And got a little dope with me, of course, like any good addict. So I used for another few days and then I got sick for, and I I drank for another. So the last day I did heroin was January 5th. Okay. I drank for another 10 days after that. Okay. My actual sobriety date is January 15th. And after that, I never drank or used. And that was 29 Palms. uh, Was that a rehab? No, 29 Palms is a um, an air, uh, Marine base. I got it. I got yeah. it. So you so just- he was out of, Yeah. You cold turkeyed it. Yes, I cold turkeyed it. He is not in recovery. I, I got it. So yeah. I, I, I'm sorry. I needed to clarify, but very well done on that being your yeah. last time. So how long ago are we talking? So that was January 15, 2015. So I have wow. eight years. That's, but that's amazing. I mean, that very well done. I know it's not easy. And the fact that you did a cold turkey. Yeah. Holy moly. I'd kicked before with Suboxone, you know, like in detoxes and that's ideal. That's preferable. But, you know, and I did have, I had one Suboxone with me. I had a half of a Suboxone with me. I had traded some heroin for a Suboxone that a friend of mine had taken a bite out of. Because again, in the world of addicts, like, of course, you have a half chewed up Suboxone from someone else's mouth. Still works, right? Yeah. Yeah. So I had a Suboxone. And then after that, I just, it was nothing. And I drank. Um, Now, 
yeah, I, I, I had done some medical detoxes before, but not this one. This was the last one. And so I was out there. I had no idea where I was going to go when I got back because I'd been doing my thing at Sober Livings for a long time where I would be living there and using and lying. And um, that same guy who said you could get clean um, begged a sober living that I had lived in twice before. I got kicked out of twice before, like begged him to let me come back. And he did. And I came back with absolutely no idea what I was going to do. I, I had done one thing before I left. I would go because I missed teaching spin so much. Teaching spin is like the love of my life. Hmm. And I would go on Craigslist sometimes and like look at people looking for instructors. And I was strung out, but I was like looking anyway. And there was a studio hiring a spin and bar teacher, of which I teach both. And I'd reached out and arranged for an audition. Now I was strung out. So I, of course, couldn't go when the audition came up. This was like days before I ended up in the doghouse. Right. And um, I did something I normally didn't do. I texted the woman that had uh, set up the audition and said, I can't make it. Normally I would just no show, but I did do that. And I don't know what compelled me to actually do that, but I'm very glad that I did. When I came back, I said, I wonder if that girl would see me again. So I texted her. And I said, hey, I'm back. Well, you know, whatever I said, can I audition again? And she said, sure, that's fine. So we set up an audition and I went and I got the job. And it started with just a half spin, half bar on Saturdays. I had 19 days off of heroin, the first class. And that grew to 16 classes a week. And at the four-year mark, I bought that studio. Wow. And, and she actually... So I had that studio for three years. I sold it. We doubled the valuation of that studio. It was a super successful venture, sold it. and But I still wanted to teach. So I was just teaching at another one. And that same woman bought this one. And so we're actually working together again. Oh, wow. Just texting me. Yeah, which is crazy. This was eight years ago. And now she, of course, is everything. And it's like, I can't believe... In between the email and then me seeing you, you lived in a doghouse and yeah. <laughs> I never would have known, you know? Yep. Yep. Um, yeah. So, and, and in that time, and there's a lot in there too, I, you know, I don't know what you want me to get into in terms it's of- It's like okay. My- it's, I mean, I, I get it. I get the, I get the story and- Yeah. I, it's just amazing that you, you were able to cold turkey. I know some people do it, but it's yeah. definitely not a pleasant experience. And No, it's not ideal. You know, and you made it through, but now you're clean and sober and that's, yes. that's what matters. Yes. Yes. And I met my husband during that time at a meeting of HA, Heroin Anonymous. He's in recovery as well. We got married. Um, we have a little pug. I wanted a pug my whole life. This pug is a demon, but he's very cute. And I <laughs> wanted a pug my whole life, but could never have one. Um, and. But no children way- yet? No, no. I think we're going to pass on the kids thing. Okay. All I'm just right. going to have the dogs. <laughs> Fair, en- Fair, enough. Fair enough. Yeah. Um, so, and but the way that I really did it when I got back was, so I I already had a sponsor. And, and I always like to include this about relapse because in my own podcast, my co-host who was not in recovery asked me once about this incident, like what was different, what I started doing and everything. And my sponsor's name is Rachel. And I said, well, I was calling Rachel before I even got back. I was calling her from 29 Palms, like to check in. And Kim said, oh, so you already knew her. And I was like, oh, yeah, she, you know, been my sponsor for a long time as I was in and out of rehabs. And she was like, okay. And then did you like, did you go to meetings? And I was like, yeah, I would walk to the one down the street, you know. And she said, oh, so you knew that meeting. And I was like, yeah. 
And I realized in that moment that all of my relapses, we think of relapses as such failures. Mm. They weren't fit because I, the first time you kick, I'd never even heard of, I, I'd heard of Suboxone, but I didn't really understand. You know, somebody has to give you a big book for the first time. If you're going to 12 step or an NA book for the first time. And like, you don't know what any of this means. There's such a learning curve in the beginning, but every time you come in and try, you pick up resources like mm. my sponsor. I knew where the meetings were that I could walk to. I knew step two was really helpful. I was I was okay doing the steps again because step two had really changed my life. And so we're gathering resources and they're they're there and they're available when we're ready to execute on them. Right, right. So they're not all failures. And right. so I like I like to let people know that that, you know, when you're coming in and you're coming in, you're coming in, like anybody listening that's like a quote chronic relapser, you know, you probably have somebody you could it's probably a big book laying on the floor of your bedroom. There yeah. might even be twelve and twelve somewhere or daily reflections that someone's given you. You could probably text someone right now and be like, Hey dude, I'm back. Can you sponsor me again? And they'll be like, I guess, where are you? You, you know, like, you know, all the things, you know, each time you've learned more, right? You get when better you, and better, kind of. Right. Yeah. Yes. Could that be the right way to say it? Yeah, that makes yeah. sense. Yeah. And then you learn more each time, you know, yeah. you also start to see what it feels like to live clean, you know, and prior to this incident, I had, I had been in a rehab for nine months and it was a long-term facility and I relapsed and so I didn't have nine months but I'd been there for a long time. And my mom, who was like really involved in this process with me has said, and I don't think I really gave this a lot of like credit before, but I think now that it's true, the nine months I was there, I was able to see what it looked like to be clean again and feel physically healthy again. And so this particular run that I'm talking about was only like three months, the last mm -hmm. one. Also probably why I was able to kick cold turkey if I had done, there was a year of me shooting meth and heroin every single day, that kick was medicated. I, mm -hmm. I couldn't have done that one. I mean, I guess I could have, but like, you know, yep. even in jail, they give you Librium, you know? Yep. So if you're someone that's listening and there's someone in your life, because, you know, the heroin addict is so full of hustles <laughs> that I know people think like, is this another hustle, this medicated detox? It's not, you don't have to do it. You don't have to do it but they're unlikely to cold turkey on their own. I right. did that time, yeah. but I was also out of town. I was hours away, you know? Um, but I, I was saying earlier that like, you know, I'm grateful that the, I was mad at that guy for a long time for getting me strung out on heroin. Right. And I was saying that I'm actually really grateful for that. And, and here's why, like the Coke bad years or when I first moved down here and I wasn't progressing in life, but I wasn't homeless. Like, those years, I had a boyfriend in LA who said to me once, he was mad at me for doing coke all the time. And and I said to him, and this is so ironic that I said this, I said to him, I was like, look, it's not like I'm shooting heroin. It's, I've never been arrested. You know, like, I'm fine. We still live here. You are seriously overreacting. And he was like, you know what you mean? You're right. That hasn't happened yet. But here's what is happening. You're always about to get fired. You're sick three days out of every seven. It's always distant with your family because they don't really know what's going on. And you're probably smart enough that you could avoid those consequences the rest of your life. But you'll have to live sick three out of every seven days. You'll always be about to get fired. But the worst part is you'll have to live your life knowing you're not the woman you were supposed to be. Mm. But you're right. You could do that. That's heavy duty. And 
heroin. He was right. I could do that on Coke and just never progress and be the person I was supposed to be. Heroin forced me to choose a side. Mm. Heroin forced me to choose life and be grateful for things in a way that I wasn't before and choose to be of service and to give back and to share in different ways. And so that's why like my podcast is called Chasing Heroin, heroin with an E, like female hero. Right, right. Because, you know, heroin brought me to the best part of me, not the worst. And I consider my addiction my biggest asset and not a liability, you know? And so I always try to include that when I'm talking about it. I think it's a great viewpoint. I think it's a it's a great way to look at it. And when you when you hit rock bottom, the only way to go is up. And right. you have like gone way beyond probably anywhere that you were before. So you have your podcast. Is that is that your main activity these days? Are you still doing training? What else do you do? No, I still so I teach spin and I actually that that woman that came back into my life and bought the studio, she actually just made me I wanted to just focus on the podcast and and write, but the world of spin and fitness also is like really where my heart is. So she actually just um, asked me to be the general manager of this studio. So I just oh, became cool. the GM of a new studio, which is cool. Wow. So, and I'm teaching. So both of those things. Very cool. Very yeah. cool. And you have your podcast. Once again, it's called chasing heroin, chasing but heroin, heroin with an E with an E. Yes. Yep. <laughs> yes, exactly. Awesome. Awesome. Hey, thank you for talking to us today. Sure. If you had one, let's just say final message for, our listeners. And truthfully, I don't know how many people we have in active addiction. I know we have people in recovery and I know we have friends and family of people um, who are going through addiction, but what would, what message would you give these people? Hmm. The early days of recovery are so hard. I call them the newcomer grind, right? Like when you don't have a car, maybe, or a license and nobody trusts you and maybe you're, you know, taking public transportation or you're living in a sober living and you don't have anything and you don't have any money. Those early days are really, really difficult. Those early days will turn out to be the biggest asset of your life because you are learning skills during that time about resilience and grit and staying the course that will serve you for years to come. I was able to sell my business for double during COVID because my husband and I, both in recovery, both went through that newcomer grind. And when they were shutting businesses down and other owners were on their heels, I'm like, I know how to move forward when I don't want to, when it sucks. So we built an outdoor space and we were on Zoom that week and we increased membership and increased revenue. And I truly credit that for both me and him to our, I, the me prior to heroin would have also probably closed. Mm. But after all of that, it's like, no, I know how to work hard. I know how to stay in the grind when it sucks. I did it when I was hustling dope and I did it when I was hustling recovery in my first, you know, seven months. I didn't get a car for seven months, you know? Mm -hmm. And Wow. So those days, especially if you're in those days and you know someone that's in those days or you're in the middle of a tough season now, take heart that those early days, those that season was planting seeds of resilience and grit that will serve you now. I think that's huge. Janine, thank you so much for thank talking you. to us today. I really appreciate you sharing your story. It's, it's 
it's a story that I know is going to resonate with people. I, I, I know I say this probably way more than I should, but I believe it every time I say it. Your story is going to resonate with people. There are going to be people out there who are going through what you went through or maybe have gone through what you went through, but maybe just that bit of inspiration will take them to another level and make them that much more successful. So that's huge. I hope so. Well, thank you so much for having me and thank you for your patience with my technical issues. (laughs) No problem. (laughs) Thank you so much for listening. I think that Janine's story is a very honest one, um, but I like her message at the end and I think she has a lot to bring to people with her story. Um, We'll be back again next week and we'll have another interview. So be well. If you need treatment, get into treatment. If you know someone that needs treatment, please don't wait. Do it now. You have been listening to the Addiction Podcast, Point of No Return. For more information, reach out to us on Facebook or go to www.theaddictionpodcast.com. Our email is theaddictionpodcast at yahoo.com.